the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the Bureau of Missing Bureaus locates the long-lost agency of teleological impulse control in the janitorial closet of the office of left-footed unpartnered socks. Black powdered trade paperbacks and unbroken night lances. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we have part two of a two part interview with David Weber and his great consulting group, Bu9, this time, who also co authored. House of Steel, the Honorverse Companion with David. We had a bunch of Bunine contributors in the studio, as well as David Weber, and we had a wonderful time. Our time together stretched out, so as mentioned, this is part two of a two-part interview. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Now here's the news. Twenty seventeen. Feels like we're in the twenty first century now, doesn't it? It may seem we've cut loose from the past and are headed toward the year twenty one hundred at the breakneck pace of ten years a decade, or maybe zooming toward the nanotechnological singularity and the end of time as we know it, or maybe even toward a post apocalypse where that big investment in buggy whips your great 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 grandparents made will finally pay off big time. But no, we're not completely unmoored. It seems the past does have something to do with the future after all. Hey, like Faulkner said, the past isn't over. It isn't even really past. So in that spirit this January, we are carrying some of the best stuff there's ever been forward in shiny new trade paperback format. For example, we have Orders of Infinity by Lois McMaster Bujold, reissued in a beautiful trade paperback. This one has three Miles for Kosogan adventures in one, there's The Mountains of Mourning, which is a Hugo and Nebula award-winning novella. Just after graduating from Military Academy, Ensign Miles must take on one of his duties as Beriar and Vorlord by acting as detective and judge in a backcountry murder case. Also in Labyrinth, Miles travels to Jackson's Hole, the planet, on a covert mission for Beriar as Dendari mercenile Adam Naismith his mission is to rescue a top research geneticist. It is complicated by the doctor's insistence that one of his experimental creatures be destroyed first. Finally, the borders of infinity finds Miles in a Setagandan prison camp. Will he make it out alive? Also out in trade paperback is a great new collection of science fiction stories edited by the redoubtable Hank Davis. This one is called If This Goes Wrong. You'll notice the subtle play on the Heinlein story title, if this goes on. Hank loves to do stuff like that. These are science fiction tales, some humorous and some not so funny, about the downside of the future and how to deal with the universe ruled by Murphy's Law. It includes stories by Robert A. Heinlein, Sarah A. Hoyt, Fritz Leiber, Gordon R. Dixon, Lester Del Rey, Christopher Anvil, Frederick Brown, wow, what a roster, and more writers who have seen a future, writers who have seen a future that may not work. Borders of Infinity by Lois McMaster Bujold and If This Goes Wrong, edited by Hank Davis, are out now at booksellers everywhere. By the way, if you get the new ebook edition of the Bujold, you get the new cover art, of course. So check them both out. This is part two of a two-part interview with David Weber and members of the Honorverse Consulting Group, BU9. Part one is available on last week's podcast. I want to welcome David Weber and several, quite a few members of the of BU9, the David Weber Honorverse Consulting Group, to the podcast. Hi, guys. Hi. It's, um, it's, uh, we had a... We had a female uh, last time, I believe, but it's all guys here this time. Um, it's here last time. Joel. Joel was here, yes. Uh, David Weber is the uh, internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series uh, creator and uh, the Honorverse within which that series is set. David's Honor Harrington science fiction novels have sold millions of copies over the years. 
David is also the author of many other Bane books, including the epic fantasy Bazel series with uh, Sword of the South, the latest entry. David has seven, no, David has 28 New York Times bestsellers. This is what Marla came up, came up with when we counted them the other day. And there are over seven and a half, and I believe it's eight million David Weber books in print now. The latest entry in the Honor Harrington series is a fantastic solo novel by David Weber, which is the Shadow, which is Shadow of Victory, and it's now out at booksellers everywhere. Also at many booksellers is House of Steel, the Honor Harrington Companion by David Weber and Budine. Um, we happen to uh, we have several key members of Budine here, and uh, let me introduce some of them. We have Chris Weave, who is a naval analyst former professor of wargaming at the Naval War College and the president and designated extrovert at BU-9. We have Arius Kaufman, who is formerly a civilian analyst for the Navy and currently a graduate student in education. His area of expertise for BU-9 is um, human terrain analyst, human terrain analyst. Uh, we have Marcus Wilms, who is a, is it Wilms? Wilms. <laughs> Wims, is, who is a tax advisor who lives in Germany. He is, uh, wait for it, Bunein's expert on the uh, Adermani Empire and all things German. He He's probably going to win. Where are you from in Germany? Are you? Uh, Paderborn, that's more in the western part. Ah. My wife is uh, is German. She's, my wife is German oh. from uh, Frankfurt area. So. Yeah, that's the one who lost my airport today. <laughs> yeah. She's Hesher. Like yesterday? <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, he's probably going to win the award this year for longest distance travel to get to HonorCon. We'll talk about what HonorCon is as well um, in a moment. We have Mark Guttis, who's a practicing attorney. Mark indexes and writes about legal systems and governments of Honorverse within BU9. We have Brian Haven, who is the secretary for BU9. He is a retired naval submariner who went on to work for NASA and then Apple before taking over at general, as general manager for Atlantis Games and Comics in Norfolk, Virginia. His contributions include general organization support and the pointed question now and again. The pointed question. The pointed question is like, is like what? <laughs> and we're doing this why? Did you really want to do that? We have also Bill Edwards and Greg Whitaker. So we stopped at Mark. We should probably go on to Greg now. All right. So I, my contributions um, are two specific areas. One is nitpicking and detail checking. So that was my major contribution to House of Steel. But the other one is uh, writing and playtesting and designing scenarios for Shipbook 2 and 3. Uh, there's a small subgroup of us that uh, like to play war games and have uh, beaten on SITS numerous times. What and, is SITS? Uh, Saginami Island Tactical Simulator. It's uh, the pen and paper version of the Crusher, uh, <laughs> the, the sim for uh, the uh, Academy. But uh, eventually we'll dust off the project again and put Ghost Rider and Apollo and... Ooh. Yes, spider drives and grazer torpedoes in there. And we'll be playing on the floors of... Uh, <laughs> Um, auditoriums. Yes. <laughs> where can you uh, where can you find out stuff about the Saganami uh, Tactical uh, Simulator? So Saganami Island Tactical Simulator, you can find it at Final Sword Productions. Final Sword. Uh, yeah, I forget what Terry Prey. It, yeah, if you do a search for Final Sword Productions in Google, you'll find it. I forget what the exact mm -hmm. URL and, is. And uh, it's available both in hard copy and the, the rules are available in PDF. Uh, on drive-through. Saginaw yeah. Island is in in the Otterverse is the is the Annapolis of it's, or, or is, something whatever the the sun is. source of the martial arts. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No way with that sin I drew. <laughs> Perhaps. So, um, and this is Brian Haven. I I took over the mic apparently yes. here. Sorry. Take this. It was your turn. It was, no, I know. I did great. Did you have anything else that you wanted to? No, I, I'm good. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Okay, so I've taken the mic. Um, so for, for the record, this is actually even funnier for us in the room because in the real world, Greg is Brian's boss. <laughs> <laughs> 
And this is, this is, you know. I, I stole him from a hobby shop and brought him into corporate IT. Yeah, now, I'm, now I work for the man. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> that would be Greg. That would be the Greg. man. The man. Yeah. So um, one of the things I do for BU9 is I provide an IT infrastructure support. Um, I handle the website, uh, what there is of it. Um, but I also manage the wiki, uh, our internal wiki. And uh, as, as part of that is the, the multiple backups in multiple locations of the said data. Um, so it is less so you can, you can, View 9 can go in and do a, a search on, it's not just all written down in, in Word files. No, You've, no, it's act, we're, we're actually building out a, a essentially our, our tech library and our data dumps that we've collected through the years are being built into a searchable wiki and that's if I internal. Ever go anywhere near it. Okay. <laughs> just keep going. I, mean, I will never be seen again. I mean, yeah, you'll uh, pass that event horizon, then it's all over. Yeah, you just uh, get the rest of the way in, man. You know. <laughs> but we can't find eighty thousand words of David Weber manuscript that we're missing. <laughs> we'll keep yes. looking. If you up. find that key, it'll go send to you. Yeah. So uh, our our own internal wiki is that we realize that the honorverse uh, has gotten so big. Um, as David was saying, that we were having a hard time keeping track of stuff. Like Tom Pope was using was using like um, Adobe InDesign documents as his his data storage mechanism, mm. which works up to a point. Yeah. Um, Until and, you can't carry a portable device that has them all. Yeah. Now, granted, that's changed over the last decade, but. So what we've been trying to do is move towards a MediaWiki installation for our own internal use. Um, which would allow us to do a bunch of things. Um, one is that we're actually, the plan is to write House of Lies as wiki articles in the internal thing, and then we've got some keywords and stuff like that to, to sort of handle the workflow issues. So that we're, so we're capturing that data, um, and it will be there for future use. Then there's also the idea that you can go in and sort of have conversations in the form of the wiki and, and write draft articles and, and and say, hey, what do you think about this? So, for instance, um, um, one of the things on my list of things to do after House of Lies is to do a fairly extensive article on how combat information centers in the Honorverse work. Um, I've spent a fair amount of time in combat information centers, as have some of the other folks in this group. Um, and so one of the things, um, we don't have a full definition of what, how CIC works in the Honorverse, but the one thing that we know is that it does not work like a U.S. Navy CIC. It's a fundamentally different creature than that. And so we've had, um, we've had some very interesting discussions. Um, Hated. <laughs> uh, there, you know, it's it's sort of funny because and there was occasionally alcohol was involved. There, at one particular Bu9 filled with respect. At one particular <laughs> Bu9 annual meeting, there was a discussion that lasted until what four o'clock in the morning, I think. Um, that the next day, everybody was coming up to, to to us and going, "Wow, you and Andy were really getting it." It's like, no, we weren't. We were just we were, were passionate about this, but but I wasn't mad. He wasn't mad. We well, were just well, okay. had a it disagreement. Was, okay, it was a conversation with Andy. Okay. And Andy is one of the most intense people I know when he starts in on something. It's like he yeah. vibrates. Okay? He, he can. Yeah. He's really, really This is cool. Andy Presby. Andy Presby, yes. um, who, is, who is just a wonderful guy. <laughs> but when he gets over there in the corner, you're like, uh-oh, Andy's had an idea. <laughs> and and it's, it, it was a very interesting conversation in a bunch of different ways in that all of my underway time was on surface ships. So I spent a lot of time in CICs watching how they interacted with each other. Whereas Andy's a, a submariner by trade. Um, and so, um, so we had very different perspectives on the entire command and control thing and how it all fits together and all the rest of it. Um, so um, so that's, it, that's, been, that's an ongoing discussion. Um, one of the things that we always do when we have a discussion like that is like, okay, well, I, I don't think the text evidence, let us go to the book of Weber <laughs> and, and do a reading in the book of Weber and find out where the text evidence says how something works. Because the one thing we know that we, any idea we can't come up with, even if it's the best idea on the planet, if it doesn't match what's been published so far, as long it's as it dead. As long as it doesn't conflict with right. what's been published right. so far, we're, we're, we'll pull it out and look at it and see how it fits in. 
The problem is that every so often they have these really great ideas and they run into the shin breaker, which is David has already established something contrary mm. to that as, as, yeah. as yeah. governing in this. That, that's one of the two, the two things that will, that will have it come to a dead stop. One is that David's already done something else. And the second one is, okay, well, if that's true, why didn't they use it in this situation? So it's like, Oh, you know, I forgot. I have the holy hand grenade of Antioch. Why didn't I think of that three books ago? Well, okay, then, then, you, then we don't. Yeah. So there's been a few instances where we've had good ideas, but we concluded that, you know, if, <coughs> if that was actually the way that worked, we would have found out about it a long time yeah, ago. The, the, the problem that is created or a problem that is created by the fact that the Honorverse is such a long, ongoing series and has so much prehistory wrapped up into it is that almost everything you can do with the technology at the beginning of the novels of Basilisk Station should be pretty much a known issue. And therefore, if there's a brilliant tactic that would be possible because of something built into the technology, you can't go there. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I can't use that as a brilliant breakthrough sneak thing that nobody ever thought of because logically this has been inherent in the technology and the technology has been plateaued for the last two, three hundred years. They should know. Okay. Um, and there are instances where I have um, pushed um, applications of the technology in somewhat different directions in order to make something that I wanted tactically happen. Um, for example, the, the whole notion of uh, using grav pulses in, in communication, okay? Uh, in theory, this should have been possible all along. So there had to be some reason why it wasn't done. And one of the reasons it wasn't done was, okay, how much fine control do you have? How much, you know, uh, how much modulation can you achieve, et cetera? And there's an Honor Harrington short story in which the, the, the drive is used, in effect, to, to pulse a signal, okay? It's not the first time anybody ever did it. Okay, but when it's done and Sanja Hemphill is looking at the, 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 the after battle uh, uh, combat report, she goes, huh. And that's what leads her into the development of this, this whole grab-based grab you know, technology. Sometimes I will use those short stories to hang the musket over the fireplace and then go back and, and develop them later on. I will say this, too. Um, if you read the Honorverse, you will see that the components of a lot of those short stories have been assimilated into the, the canon of the, of the Honorverse. Um, what I try to do with the short stories is to invite the author to write them and provide them with the tech Bible before they start, and then pretty much to leave them to their own devices unless they do something that is A, impossible under honorverse assumptions, or B, is going to wreak havoc on a story concept that I've been building for the last five novels, okay? Um, but beyond that, they're free to go. And You're that's, talking about the worlds of honor and The worlds of honor. Yeah. Uh, but that's why all of those stories are set prior to wherever the novel is right now. Because that way they can't nail my feet to the floor. Well, that's, it, you know, thinking about it now, you could, since you can go back in time and write stories from before, you could sneak in some things in the past so that you could have some I can sneak tactical, them in as long uh, as what I sneak in doesn't conflict with what's already been established. Mm -hmm. Okay, and as long as it doesn't create one of the situations we're talking about here, well, if that tech has been there all along, why didn't they use it to solve this problem here? Conflicting yeah, you, by its absence. Yes. And you don't want to create something like a Picard maneuver where everybody in the fandom looks at that and say, wait a minute, why haven't they been doing that all along? Yes, exactly. Well, you could, uh, anyway, let's not go down there. <laughs> <laughs> no, you could create in the story 
that you wrote the reason it wasn't adopted and, and then have somebody pull the, 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 the main, call off and the, the main reason it wasn't adopted is because david didn't think of it in time yeah, yeah. okay well, i mean and and i and i i will go so far out of my way to avoid those moments uh because it's a cheap rip off of the reader Okay, yeah, yes, they yeah. get this brilliant riff here that was, you know, that I was like, ooh, why didn't I think of that six novels ago? Okay, well, okay, it's pity you didn't because six novels ago it would have been an innovation. Okay, mm -hmm. and today it's like, they've been doing that for 70 years. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. But, um, uh, but on the other hand, okay, in the real world, occasionally you have situations where technologies have existed and it takes a while before somebody says, you know, if we do this and that at the same time, we'll get some synergistic effects out of it. And oh, I'm, uh -huh. I'm thinking about. I think I sent you the Carl Lautenschlager articles on on the development of dreadnought technology pre World War One, because um, David and I are both naval geeks, so we we shared articles back and forth. And one of the comments that Lautenschlager makes in in one of those papers is that he's a he was a I think he still is an analyst at Los Alamos National Labs. Um, one of the arguments he makes is that the, the dreadnought revolution wasn't any individual technology that took place because all of those technologies had been around for, in some cases, more than a decade mm -hmm. before the British launched dreadnought. What was really the revolution was doing all of them at the same time and understanding that they all worked together. Yeah. And so when you ha had continuous aim and salvo firing and... Um, and fire direction, and there was a couple of other things in there. You got this, this, um, this overnight. Yeah, I mean, this overnight revolution that was twenty years in the making. It, yeah, an overnight revolution, twenty years in the. You got this, this quantum leap in capability um, that existed from basically just using the same Legos that everybody else had. But you can do that over a twenty-year span. You can't do that over a century mm -hmm. span. Yes, that's somebody yes. would have thought. Why don't we slice the bread? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we'll slice the bread before we put it in the wrapper. Yeah. Uh, the other, I know. Well, we're spread that way. You slice it after it's in the that's... wrapper. You can do that once. <laughs> the, the other issue you run into, the other aspect is that somebody tried it in the past, mm -hmm. and it didn't work. We've done that. And it didn't work. We did that. And everybody knows and that doesn't work. The gun blew up. It killed the Secretary of the Navy. We're not going to do that, that again. Ever again. Yes. 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 And so that's the other thing that holds you back from these innovations. Is, and some, but, sometimes and the it's, And it's political will and it's cost. And it's we know that it won't work. So we just don't try. And sometimes the details are really important in how you try to do something. Back in the 60s, the Navy had something called DASH, the Drone Anti-Submarine <laughs> Helicopter. It's which, a good idea. Which is a good idea. The idea is that if you've detected a, a submarine, you launch this helicopter carrying a torpedo, and you have it go out and drop the torpedo. And there wasn't anything wrong with the concept. There wasn't anything wrong with the hardware. The problem was is that DASH was... They, they didn't have very many of them, so they gave them to these ships and they said, you know, be careful with it. And that got interpreted as, well, don't, don't use it any more than you absolutely have to. And so the end result of it was nobody was very well practiced on it, so when they, whenever they did testing, they had poor performance. What can the we, Navy should have said was, we'll make more. Test it. If, can, if you break you, it, that's okay. Can you say 1930s torpedo evaluation exercises? Okay. Yes, I mean you can. I can. I will guarantee you that I can find a way to screw up the introduction of any technology anybody wants to introduce without having to break a historical research sweat. Okay. Yeah. The one thing that you have to bear in mind when you do that is something that Jim Bain said to me many years ago, which is, I don't care if you can demonstrate to me that somebody actually did it. It has to be plausible to the reader that somebody could be that stupid, okay? And it's really hard to convince people that someone could be as stupid as people have been in real life, all right? Um, Harry Turtledove has another formulation of that, which is, in the real world, it only has to have happened. Yes. Fiction has to be believable, but in the real world, it only has to have happened. Yeah, you're getting, this is Bill Edwards. Um, one of the things you're getting an example now is how Bu9 contributes to a single or multiple ideas. 
They either form the basis of a story or support the story itself. It's part of the background you never see spread out in detail. But without that item in there saying, David, it has to be done this way, it better fit, he can better make it better fit his plot. Mm -hmm. One question area we had, it was a short story. It involved Honor taking out the bad guy sitting in his headquarters. <laughs> and the initial idea was uh, to go ahead and hit him with a shot from the ship's main ener energy battery. Speed of light weapon, wham, he's gone. We had a heated conversation by email on how to do this. Because the one school of thought was to come up with a kinetic energy uh, projectile fired from orbit. Precision got it enough uh, to go ahead and take out a building and leave the rest of the city intact. One idea was use the main energy battery, one shot, poof, you're done. Until it was pointed out that the radiological impact of that beam hitting the atmosphere would not only vaporize the building and all the occupants, but given everyone in that city fatal radiation poisoning. So and that we, would be bad. Yes. <laughs> it's yes, considered you know. a violation of the <laughs> Now, granted, honor would have won, you know, but, you know, that's, you know, a uh, pirate victory, I think it's called. Yes, pyrrhic. That's what uh, U9 does. Uh, my contribution in uh, the uh, Companion 1 was just a math check. I had to build a math model of the Manicor system to get the distances and times and all that right. And it came out as two sentences in the book because House of Steel was not an, was not an astronomy thesis. Mm -hmm. Other stuff that we've all done in little bits and pieces, how uh, text dev. But those two sentences would. But those two sentences wouldn't have been there if Bill hadn't crunched the numbers. Thank you, David. <laughs> but you can you can also feel um, when you know that the the research has been done, it comes across in 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 the feel of what the writer's putting well, into it. I have to say, one of the things that I think has made the Honor Harrington books work from the beginning even before B9 came along, but even more now, is that I had an underlying grasp of what was possible and why it was possible and what was impossible and why it was impossible that was there even if the reader couldn't see it. I think the reader senses when you have that background structure involved and when it isn't there. And when it isn't there, there's something vaguely unsatisfying about the read, even if it seems that this protagonist is being the most brilliant guy since Alexander the Great, okay? There's just this sense of something lacking, okay? Kind of a sense that, what is he standing on while he does this? And I think that it's critical if you're going to do convincing world building that you think about that kind of stuff when you get started. My original tech Bible was, what, 60,000 words, maybe? Um, I, I think of it in pages. Wasn't it 80 pages to it start was, off with? Yeah, it was with? something like that. Um, but I had, I had, it, it, it included a sort of a bird's eye view of warfighting technology, <laughs> sciences, legal structure, governing structures, etc. Um, there was a section on the tree cats and, and how they fit in, you know, etc. And all of that material has in many respects been grown beyond at this point. But it's all still in there. And it's been in there since the very first book, back in the background, cooking away, helping to tie together why these characters do what they do. I know about the constraints between the balance of power between the House of Lords and the House of Commons, and it's been there from day one of the Honorverse, but it doesn't really get explicated until High Ridge comes along, and you got this bare-knuckle fight between the Lords and the Commons and everything else, but it's been there.
And so when High Ridge comes along, the reader doesn't say, whoa, where did this come from? Okay, Misty Lackey is one of my favorite writers in all the world. I love a lot of her stuff. And I really loved the, the Valdemar novels. Okay, but you do like the first three, four novels, and then all of a sudden you've got this empire of the East, which is this great existential threat that never even got referenced in the earlier books. And that was always a problem for me. Once you get past the point of, whoops, where have they been all this time, then it's fine. But you hit that, that stage there where they're, they're being introduced. You're like, why was nobody even aware that this was a threat, that they were there at all? And now, all of a sudden, they are seriously an existential threat to the existence of the kingdom of Valdemar. Okay, and I've tried to avoid that, mm -hmm. and I'm sure I've had my <coughs> equivalent of that, hopefully on a smaller scale, uh, here and there, um, tucked in the books. And I've had a few readers who have written me and said, "Was that?" And I've said, "Wait for the next book," and then the next book has come out, and I'm going, "Oh, okay, I see. You know what you were doing." I have to say that uh, there was one reader who hated Hamish Alexander. Hamish Alexander was the scum of the earth as far as he was concerned. Uh, this whole business with he's, he's feeling for honor when he's got Emily, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I explained to him in private emails and, and whatnot, you know, uh, and, and he was like, no, no, no. Well, I did, what I did not know, what I eventually learned, is that uh, he has a paraplegic wife and so, of course, you know, he's seeing Hamish as betraying Emily, okay? But we finally met Emily Alexander in the book where she basically says, look, I'm the grown-up in the room. <laughs> you know, you guys, you're doing your best, okay? It's not working, you know, kind of thing. You know. And he actually posted on the bar. He said, I owe David Weber an apology, okay? Because now that I've met Emily, Okay, she is not a victim. She is not passively being, you know, abandoned and mistreated. And Hamish never, he did not have this affair with honor behind her back, you know, the whole nine yards. And it's a tribute, I think, in some ways to the reality these characters have taken on that he felt that strongly about it and that when he met Emily, Okay, that the 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 criteria changed uh, because he suddenly understood it in 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 a different in a different pattern, a, a different flow. Um, and I've had a couple of of similar things where people have just really gotten on my case because of what I did to one of my characters. How could you do that to him? Frigates, David. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, well, let's see. I write military fiction. Um, people are going to get killed, you know. I have to say the one person that I really expected to have to move to Montana and raise rabbits over was killing Andrew. I was like, oh, my God, they are so going to come after me for this one. And Everybody said, more or less, you know, if Andrew had been allowed to choose the way he was going to die, that would have been the one he chose. Mm -hmm. And I've come to the conclusion that you can kill even beloved characters in fiction as long as, as long as it's not, I don't know, but you're not supposed to be here. All I remember was, was a meaningless death. <laughs> Oh, God. See, now, now, what David's referring to there is the Star Trek Next Generation episode, Yesterday's Enterprise, which is my absolute favorite piece of, of, of material that's come out of that franchise. My, my personal rule for watching a Star Trek movie is, am I better off watching the Star Trek movie or watching Yesterday's Enterprise twice? And usually I watch Yesterday's Enterprise twice. I actually thought that that worked really well in that show. Mm -hmm. Um, precisely because it was like it was everybody felt really her first death was meaningless her second yes. death wasn't yes <laughs> is that the, the security officer that Tashi yeah. who got yeah. killed by yeah. the oil slick in the first yeah. season skin of evil well the writers were just 
mad because she wouldn't sign her contract, and so they wanted to kill her in a meaningless way that, to, to get back at the actress. I mean, that's the... I not really think that was it. No, it wasn't. Well, she, she had decided she, she, to leave. She had decided to leave. She was leaving. Okay, but the whole reason that they went with the um, the Romulan daughter was yeah. because they still had episodes with her under contract. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, that was the reason for it. See, I actually was happier when it wasn't the Romulan daughter. I thought that was the... Por- the every now and then, Star Trek will have an opportunity to have somebody die and they always seem to um, they always seem to flinch. Well, I'm going I'm going to say this and I realize some people will be upset with me for saying this, but I don't think Gene Roddenberry ever understood how to write a strong female character, really. Not and reveal that character's strength to the viewership. I'm trying to remember. I think that by the time by the time that episode came out, mm-hmm. he was not part of the production. No, no, no. He, he was, he and, was, and he wasn't. Yeah. Um, but what what I'm saying is that okay, the original pilot, okay, with with his wife as the as the, uh, the, the before they were married. Before they were married, um, I think was the strongest female character that he produced in the entire franchise, okay? And I have wondered sometimes if the reason that he didn't produce stronger female characters down the road was that they wouldn't buy it with a female captain. Oh, okay. well, I mean, they, they didn't buy it with a female XO. Well, maybe yeah. NBC women very well. Yeah. The, I mean, you can if, just, if uh, anyone has read the new <clears throat> Star Trek 50-year uh, anniversary book, that the, I mean... Roddenberry does not come off extremely well as a, as a, uh, as some no, of and, and, and there's a reason, there's a reason uh, that he doesn't. Um, you can ask Michelle, Nichelle Nichols about her experience, uh, as one of the central Star Trek characters, yet she felt that she was not being used in any manner, much less as, as a strong female character. She wasn't. Well, she I was using her as a teenager, but let's, <laughs> 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 no. Um, Let's not talk anymore about Star Trek. If we can. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. no. All the, right, go ahead. I understand that. We yeah. can make this. Yes. We could talk about Star Trek for three days. No, no. Let me. Let me, let me just. Yes. Let me, yeah. Okay. One of the reasons that the Honor Harrington books have succeeded as well as they have is because I prefer writing about strong, competent people, half of whom happen to be female. Okay, and Honor herself happens to be. I never. It never. I never thought one way or the other about whether to make honor male or female when I was looking at the storyline. Just the way that, you know, full-blown from the brow of Zeus, I guess, you know, it's like she was female, okay? It never occurred to me to go any other way. And I didn't do it because in 1993 there weren't a whole lot of strong female characters or anything else. I did it because that's the way this character felt most natural to me, okay? Um, and I've been asked, people have said, you know, how do you write strong female characters? And I say, I don't. I write strong human characters who happen to be female. All right. Um, and yet it took an awful long time. And I would argue to some extent we still aren't there. It took an awful long time for mainstream science fiction and movies to actually accept strong female characters. Now, Claudia Christian's here this weekend. Yeah, for the con. Yeah. Um, and Claudia's Ivanova is an example of how not to build a strong female character that worked. Okay? Because Ivanova is in the category of we have to out testosterone the guys to succeed. All right. If if you watch her in her yeah. in her command style, she's oh, yeah. with the time comes, okay kind of thing. And there, there's nothing wrong with a female character who does that. But the problem was that we didn't have a template for successful female military personnel at the time that Babylon 5 was being written, at the time that I started doing the Honorverse. And what I think a lot of people missed, and the reason that the Honorverse works in that respect, Every successful military commander has his or her own style that builds out of who he or she may be. 
what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, how they learn to use them, how they learn to not use them. And until we got past the notion that in order to be a strong military figure, a female character had to be more male than the guys were, we couldn't write a female character that didn't have testicles. All right? Bottom line. And that, I think, is one of the reasons that Honor worked. Because Honor simply, this was her, who she was, and this was what she built her command style from. And I think we're seeing a lot more of that now um, in fiction generally. And I'm not saying, oh, yes, Honor taught them all. What I'm saying is we had to evolve a concept yeah. um, well, that and, we didn't have. And, and, and on Basilisk Station, um, there's just that wonderful sense of how alone she feels. And, and you know, the, and that, I think, set her up, you know, is she's essentially always that, that, that new captain. Um, who's proving herself over and over again. And well, and if you, look at, if you look at the honor of Basilisk Station, and you look at the honor of at all costs, okay, you're 25 years down the road, okay? And this is a woman who has gone from a brand new captain with an obsolete light cruiser who's up against it to someone who tells her husband, the queen can wait, I haven't hugged my daughter yet. Okay, or to me, to me, what really brings it into line is when she's talking to the guy who's investigating Timothy Muir's death. And she basically says, no, you, you're not even open to the possibility. You know, you're fired. And he says, with all due respect, you know, I'm not in your chain of command. You can't do that. And she says, this is how it's going to be, okay? And I will talk to Patricia Gibbons, and if that doesn't work, I will talk to the queen. Your ass is grass, more or less, is what she tells her. Okay, now picture the Honor Harrington on the bridge of the light cruiser Fearless, basically saying, I'll talk to the queen about it, by God, you know, if you don't do it my way, all right? So there's been just a little growth. Oh, yeah. No, 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 <laughs> absolutely. It's, uh, I'm still upset that she doesn't like coffee. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, but McGinnis really. makes really good coffee, That's... and Hamish likes it. Okay. Okay. Can we? Um, Not enough calories in coffee. Yeah. Can we? You can make it so that. It depends oh, on what you put in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Coffee's like grits. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so. That, that is just so wrong. I'm going to have bad dreams <laughs> now, Tommy. So, uh, whither do you not? That's, uh, you know, what, what you're working on this wiki that's going to be this amazing technical resource. Where do you think that none of the rest of you will see? That nobody else will see. Well, it'll be, it'll be there for David and for you guys to, to draw on. And um, what, what, how do y'all foresee it developing in the future? Is it just going to continue in this steady state of helping? And, and I know one thing that I want United to do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 seriously. Um, if another movie or TV project looms on the horizon. I want the producers to be smart enough to involve B9 from the mm -hmm. beginning in their, you know, obviously the producer is going to have to make the final call on what gets used and what doesn't. But there is such a huge body of work here already just waiting to be picked up. And I have to say, I'm really inclined to think that TV may be a better venue for the Honorverse because of the size of the cast, mm -hmm. uh, the number of characters and, and so forth, and the way that the novels build on one another. Um, but I really, really, really want, not just because these guys have been here and they've done all this and I want to see them get the recognition and hopefully a little financial remuneration that they deserve for all the countless hours that they've involved, invested in this. But because they give such a wonderful view into the Honorverse for anybody who avails themselves of what's been, what you guys have, have assembled, okay? Um, so I just thought I'd throw, I just wanted to get that on the, on the list there. Okay. I, I hope, and I hope that happens. Um, one part of the formation of B9 that we sort of glossed over at the beginning is that, we, so we started off as a bunch of people that were basically pen pals with Tom. 
Um, and then we turned into a mailing list because Tom started including multiple people at this in the same email conversation. So we sort of became aware of each other that way. Then there was the first attempt to make an Honorverse movie. Um, and during that attempt, we they when they started talking about like how would CIC be configured and all the rest of it, there was a um, there was a group of us that were sort of having this group discussion. And that was the first time that we really sort of had a group discussion. And shortly after that, we decided, well, we're a group and we need a name and we get together in person every now and then. And then after that came the point where Tony, uh, Tony Weisskopf didn't know how to sign a contract with a mailing list. And so we actually had to, to incorporate. Um, and so we incorporated. And so um, that it, it, it all, I like the idea of a movie because that's really, I sort of view the, the moment where we became an actual group of people doing something um, well, like together. TV series, it has to be a pilot. Works for me. <laughs> yeah. Works for me. Um, aside from that, we've got <coughs> we've got um, at least a, a House of Lies and w hopefully one more strong companion idea. We want to cover all the major powers, and we think we might be able to do it in a total of three books. We might need four. Um, I can't believe that there could possibly be growth in anything involved with the Honorverse. Well, and the other thing is, is that those books, you know, remember House of Steel ends before the current time uh -huh. because we knew that we couldn't, we didn't want to say something that was wrong or incomplete, but we also couldn't tell the whole story because David hadn't told the whole story yet. So we purposely stayed back. So there's still actually even House of Steel, there could be more stuff in House of Steel. <coughs> Um, I have so home, there's a bunch of stuff we can go with. I have at home in my bookcase one of my treasured things I inherited from my dad. It's the Historian's History of the World. Okay. Are you familiar with it? I've heard of this book. I don't think okay. I own it. Well, no, it, it's, it's about 30 volumes. Okay. Yeah, I definitely don't own it. A lot of it. A lot of it is source documents from the time that have been translated into English and whatnot. Okay, but um, it ends, the, 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 uh, the last complete volume of it uh, was published um, about the time of the First World War, okay? And there are three later volumes that are these eventful years is what they're called that take you through about 1934 or something. That's when they, they basically stopped doing it. But I could see it these eventful years after we've done the last companion nailed to this time zone in which we bring up to date where we are in the honorverse on you know yeah. you know like the world book yearbooks that they used to yeah yeah exactly yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly so in addition to that we've got we've got a couple of different ideas for games in that universe um we work very closely with final sword um one of the problems we've run into as of late is that um all of us have Day jobs, unfortunately. Yeah. All of, I, you know, I would like to not leave without mentioning all of you guys are very impressively employed. So um, this is a this is a high powered group um, that has gathered around David. It's very um, it's 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 daunting. To, uh, not me. Uh, so so not I'm me gonna, either. I mean, I'm and a grad student. <laughs> and I, then there's the lawyer. <laughs> I, I, I should I should point out something that that. Uh, it's not unusual for at the BU9 annual meeting when we'll be up to our eyeballs in some technical discussion for Mark to just sort of go, why am I here? Yeah. And my response to him is always the same, which is, Mark, I know why you're here. Um, you're not here to be another technical guy. We got a bunch of technical guys. Um, He's here to cover some, cover down on some of the topics that that the rest of us don't cover down on. No, as it turns out, I'm not a lawyer, but I am a political scientist, historian stuff uh, type guy, and so I generally let the other guys do the technical stuff until it starts talking about like command and control and tactics, techniques and procedures, et cetera, et cetera, which is more my bailiwick. But the other thing that Mark does every so often is raise his hand and say why. Okay, and we all go. Oh, <laughs> that's, a, that's, there. that's a really good question. <laughs> so well, I, I think, okay, Joelle, uh -huh. in a way, came out of Bu9, okay? And you can see where she is now, uh, you know, in her relationship with Bane. Yeah, okay? she's working on her first and, book. And I can see, I, can, I could see the possibility of some of the rest of these guys, if their lives didn't get in the way, uh, <laughs> doing, doing the same thing. Um, 
it's <laughs> okay, but you keep saying that, and it's going to be like you know he always meant to write one of those. Doesn't he look natural? <laughs> you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> you know. But I am. I think a bunch of us have have some thoughts on that. Well, run them out. You know, I mean, I, I we. I've got three fiction, three nonfiction books I want to write first. Oh well, okay, but but see, I'm I'm in the position of it, it's really kind of strange because they all got involved in the honor verse and they're all like, you know, okay, David, 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 David. I'm like, I'm impressed by them, okay, by 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 who they are, what they do, and what they've done, okay, plus what they bring to the honorverse, okay? What they've accomplished within the honorverse in addition to, to all the rest of it. And I know that nobody can do everything that they would like to do in their lives. You have to make choices about where you're going to go and, and, and what you're going to do. Um, and I just am pleased by the, the sort of uh, serendipitous effect that bringing this crew together has had, not just in terms of the work, but in terms of the friendships that have evolved out of it, okay? Um, before there was an honor con, there was an honor con, which was Bunine meeting somewhere, Philadelphia or Greenville, South Carolina. We did the, the, the basic fundamental planning for House of Steel sitting around my dining room table eating spaghetti sauce, okay? There was um, spaghetti also. <laughs> but the, 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 um, I can't think of anything that I would have traded in, in, in the moment that this was being put together for just sitting there. A few people had spaghetti sauce on their shirts. <laughs> okay. Sitting there around the table, and 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 it was not a business discussion. Okay, it was a conversation of a bunch of friends with a shared interest about how best to make this project work. All right, and from a purely personal perspective, that to me is the most important thing about BNI. Okay. Um, and uh, I've been blessed in a lot of things in my life. I've been blessed in my wife. I've been blessed in my kids. I've been blessed in what I get to do for a living. Okay, I've also been blessed in my friends. And this is some of them. Um, and and uh, I'm just, just really grateful that the books brought this bunch of people together. As am I. Well, that sounds like a wonderful place to leave it. <laughs> uh, why don't we, uh, David Weber and the B9 Associates, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, thank you for having thank us. Thank you. thank you guys for coming. That was part two of a two-part interview with David Weber and members of the Honorverse Consulting Group B9. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy, the only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Chapter 23 Hablinger on Coursera 
The militia field commanders have ordered their troops not to shoot without orders, Daniel said. And Colonel Bourbon has sent the same order to all the unassigned troops. That doesn't mean the miners are going to obey him, but none of them hold positions too close to where we'll be going in. I don't trust the garrison not to shoot either, Hogg said morosely. He rubbed his nose with the back of his hand. But hell, you can break your neck stepping off the curb. Though Daniel wouldn't be leading, he looked over his companions with the eye of a commander. They were outside the entrance to their dugout, hidden from the Pandalarian positions a kilometer away. Hogg wore much the same shapeless clothing as usual, though like the rest of them he had pulled a gray ski mask over his head and face. It was more to block the thermal signature than from concerns over visible light. Tovera wore dark gray coveralls of a harder fabric than her usual garments. Her little submachine gun was in a shoulder holster, looking like an awkward pistol. She wore heavy gloves to keep her hands clean for when she needed them. A mortar thumped from garrison lines on the other side of the river levees. That's the signal, Hogg said. Hide your eyes. When it burns out, we'll get moving. Adele was the only one who needed the warning. She wore baggy coveralls over a Pantelarian officer's uniform. Even though it was service garb, its shoulder boards stuck out like the arms of a clothes hanger. Daniel darkened his goggles manually a moment before the pop high in the sky indicated the flare had burst. Fierce radiance bathed the quadrant of the battlefield centered on the Cephasis and its high levees. Still time to grab something a little less clumsy than that damned cannon, Hogg said, flicking a finger toward Daniel's stocked impeller. I figured than crawling out with this. Daniel wiggled the weapon in the crook of his left elbow. Isn't as awkward as not having it handy if we need it tonight. I'll be bringing up the rear as soon as we drop Tovera off, so my problems won't slow you down. He'd slipped a condom over the muzzle. An impeller's mechanism was pretty well sealed, but he didn't want to fire one with a barrel plugged. Nobody could swear that he wouldn't drop his weapon while crawling through this liquescent mud. The hissing in the sky ended. For a moment, a faint white afterglow shone above the levees. Send her on after I've got to the next dike, Hogg said. His voice sounded as though the night itself were speaking, soft and almost lilting. He moved sideways and was gone, unrolling a coil of communication wire behind him. The free end of the wire was attached to the belt of Adele's coveralls. Daniel watched his servant slither across the paddy. Even with his goggles light enhancement, all he really saw were the ripples. He kept his hand lightly on Adele's shoulder. Hogg had taught his young charge how to move in the wild. Daniel thought he was probably as good as most land forces soldiers with scout training. Hogg was a different order of creature, though, more like a water rat than a human. Only because he knew it would be there, Daniel saw a brief hump slide over the top of the next dike. A field skipper clicked three times. You see that light in Hablinger, Daniel said softly. It was probably an unshaded street light reflecting off a polished roof at just the right angle. Crawl for that. Just keep going till you hit the dike, if there's a problem. How in heaven's name could there be? But Adele's view of the physical world was as different from his as their views of mazes of data. Just follow the wire, and needs must, Hogg will come back and fetch you. Yes, said Adele. She hunched down and began crawling forward. She sounded like a school of redfish spawning in the shallows off Bantry, but the noise only mattered to senses as keyed up as Daniel's own. There was no danger. What was the sound Hogg made? Tovera said. Daniel twitched, startled by the words in his ear while he was completely focused on what was going on in front of him. He smiled faintly. Was Tovera nervous? He certainly had been. That was a field skipper, he said, without looking away from the paddy. We have them on Bantry. There's an animal here, the webbed tree mouse that sounds the same, only it gives single clicks, not three in a row. He smiled more broadly. Now if there's a Pantelarian out there with as much interest in natural history as I have, he said, we might be in trouble. That's why you have the impeller, Tovera said. Her voice was a rasping whisper. I never bothered to learn to use one of those, she added after a moment. I always figured that I'd get close enough to use what I have, or somebody else could deal with the problem. Now, maybe I should have learned. Daniel debated what and whether to speak. 
At last, he said, we'll have to hope that one slug will do the job. It's been my experience that with ease, he hefted the impeller slightly. One usually does. Tovera looked away, then turned to face him again. Hawk said you're as good as he is with one of those, she said. No one would ever call Tovera's voice gentle, but this time it had less of the usual crisp edge. On a good day, Daniel said. He smiled and would have laughed under other circumstances. Though on a really good day, we won't need to learn. The field skipper clicked again. Head out, Daniel said. Wait for me at the dike. Hog and I hope Adele will have gone on ahead. Tovera nodded, then slipped into the mud. She wasn't graceful, but she crawled on her elbows and knees instead of proceeding on all fours the way Adele had done. Daniel doubted that the Fifth Bureau had trained her to low crawl, so the technique, like driving an air car, was something Tovera had learned on her own. She was also extremely strong. Her pace across the paddy was as steady as a metronome's ticking. Daniel knew well how much strain low crawling put on muscles which hadn't been habituated to the exercise. Tovera reached the dike and vanished. Daniel followed her track, cradling the impeller in the crooks of both elbows. Tovera, who wasn't carrying a long arm, would have been just as well off using her hands and feet. But she'd learned the right technique and she was going to employ it. The mud was messy, but it was much easier on the person crawling than gravel or even a woodland littered with outcrops and fallen limbs would have been. The rice had seeded itself raggedly, and the patties hadn't been properly weeded or irrigated in the past year. The irregular growth was ideal for concealing somebody who knew what he was doing and didn't mind staying low. Daniel slipped over the dike. Tovera waited on the other side like a bog-hunting predator, an unusually large one. Mistress has reached the next wall, she said, her voice barely a modulation of the breeze. Like Daniel himself, she wore RCN multifunction goggles. The night was very dark, but light enhancement brought out ripples in the starlight, even though the body making them remained a shadow. We'll go on together then, Daniel said. The strong points keep a close watch on our lines, but not on the rest of the landscape. Adele set their cameras to loop the same half hour from last night when we started out, but we should be safe the rest of the way without tricks. He smiled, though his mask hid the expression from Tovera. Some Pantellerian technicians are quite good, he said. I told Adele that we were better depending on poor alertness and woodcraft among their line troops. I lead, said Tovera. She began crawling forward again. Daniel gave her a ten-yard start and followed. He carefully avoided closing the gap between them so that he didn't prod Tovera to go faster than she was comfortable doing. That was quite fast enough anyway, and she hadn't slowed from the first hundred meters. At the third dike, he paused to let Adele finish her scramble over the fourth. The field skipper clicked again. Daniel gestured Tovera forward and again followed. The night had its own sounds. Even neglected, the paddies provided rich foraging for small animals and the slightly larger animals which preyed on them. There were even webbed tree mice, Daniel was pleased to notice. The crawl was hard work. He couldn't pretend to be in condition for this sort of exercise and potentially quite dangerous, but Daniel found it unexpectedly relaxing. It took him back to his childhood on Bantry, when Hogg taught him about the world of the estate's nighttime, whose population was wholly different from that of the day. Daniel had early on begun using night vision electronics, a pair of RCN goggles from Uncle Stacy with light enhancement and thermal imaging capacity. Hogg didn't forbid the hardware, but he was openly contemptuous of it, saying he could do anything goggles could and that he wasn't going to break down when he was ten miles deep in a swamp. That was literally true, but Daniel hadn't had, and would never have, the forty years of experience that the older man did. Hogg was a wonderful mentor and a father figure for Daniel, but he was not a role model for civilized society. He joined Tovera at the next dike. Because of the slight angle at which they were approaching Hogg's entry point, they had reached one of the longitudinal walls which separated the paddies every five hundred meters or so. A pair of ten-foot trees grew from this side of the long wall. Fuzzy foliage gave the crooked limbs a ghostly appearance by starlight. Daniel dug the flare's base into the mud between the roots of the nearer tree and set the blasting cap in the fuse pocket. 
He handed Tovera the clacker with a fuse wire already attached. Suit yourself about where you hide, he said. But they've got automatic impellers in that strong point and a mortar besides. The dikes probably won't stop an impeller slug, and the mortars won't do much in this mud unless they fuse the shells for airburst. But I won't tell you this is going to be safe. Tovera was probably smiling. Then I won't tell you that you're an idiot, Captain Leary, she said. Daniel chuckled. He gave her the end of his reel of commo wire. The ends were already split and stripped. Then he started forward again, letting the wire uncoil behind him. There was a long way yet to crawl. Daniel had lost the rosy swaddling of nostalgia, but the only way you accomplished a job like this was by going on, putting one foot in front of the other. Well, one elbow in front of the other in the present case. Daniel crawled over the next dike and paused to check for sound or movement as he always did. Adele was waiting. She slipped her pistol back into its pocket and put her glove back on. An almost emptied reel of commo wire sat beside her. Hogg hadn't taken it with him as he made the final approach of the listening post. I'm glad to see you, Adele, Daniel said very softly. Well begun is half done, isn't it? A field skipper clicked ahead of them. Adele turned her head. She must have heard it, or at any rate heard something. Time to move, Daniel said. He grinned. We'll go together this time. Nobody's going to be listening ahead of us. Adele nodded. Yes, she said. She didn't return his smile, though. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a lifetime supply of space-adapted rompers and pressurized yoga pants for all the Bunine hotties, plus an impeller wedge cheesecake from Juniors of Manticore, and the thanks and plaudits of a grateful star empire for David Weber and Bunine. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 